Hey friends, thanks for being here. For today's show, I'm talking about how to survive the apocalypse. Taoist and Christian advice compared. What's this really about? This is about spiritual anarchism. What do you know? And uh, again, as I say in my talk here, I'm not trying to convert anybody to my own way of thinking. I am interested in opening up new vistas. I'm interested in allowing people to explore the possibility that there might be a better world than the one that we have been forced to assume is inevitable. It is not a comprehensive conversation about Taoist or Christian anarchism, but it is just kind of the beginning of teasing out some of these themes and, you know, really talking through with students how it might work in the world and what kind of prophetic voice um, these uh, ancient philosophers and early Christians might uh, provide for us in our perplexing times, these times in which it seems like our trust in states are uh, kind of waning. And I tend to think that's a good thing. I wish the world were a little bit more stable and easy. On the other hand, uh, this is a time for us to be thinking about whether or not we have uh, put too much trust in money, power, and glory, things that Jesus rejected as he uh, went into the wilderness and then came back with a, a new mission and a kingdom of God on his lips and in his heart, something he shared with the whole world. So whether you're a believer or not, whether you're secular or sacred <laughs> in, your, uh, in your orientation, and the things you like to care about, this is a conversation about uh, that kind of freedom that might exist in uh, these other ways of thinking that come from, in the case of the Taoists, the Warring States period, and in the case of the Christians, a time of great persecution under the domination system. I also want to make sure I have one caveat. I had a colleague, a Christian colleague, who asked me, hey, you know, are you saying in this talk that if you don't go to church, you're going to go to hell? Absolutely not. <laughs> I am being provocative, I'm being tongue-in-cheek, but I'm also being sincere when I say in this talk that there's no salvation outside of the church. But really what I'm talking about here is this idea that apart from a network of people that are engaged in mutual aid and support for one another, as we all work together to oppose unjust systems, we will not survive. So if the church is not defined as this institutional religious structure, but is a people who are working for a better way, and in that mutual aid and support are, are caring for one another so that we can actually survive a little bit longer and actually maybe pull some of this stuff off, that's where it's at. And so uh, do keep that in mind as, uh, as you're listening. I'm so glad you're here with me. I hope you are happy and free, and if not, I hope this podcast just nudges you in that direction of happiness and freedom, and I wish you all the best. Thanks for being with us. Let's go. So here tonight, we have our Quibono Professor of the Year from last year, who already gave the opening convocation, but we always double tap and overwork our professors. So we make him do the uh, first round of the Quibono lectures as well. Uh, this is Dr. Jeff Mallinson. He earned a PhD from Oxford University, where he wrote a really boring dissertation on the reformed theologian Theodore Beza. <laughs> that got instantly published. Um, by OUP, which is Oxford University Press. He has since upped his popular interest by tackling issues such as Scientology, Eastern thought, and Christian sexuality. Ooh, Dr. Mallinson. 
<laughs> Most recently, he's become interested in how religion be can become a source of cognitive abuse, providing resources at his website, Protect Your Noggin, aimed at cultivating critical, critical thinking and its relationship to freedom. Jeff, Dr. Mallinson, has had a long and fruitful academic teaching career that has landed him here at his alma mater, Concordia University, Irvine, and we are very glad of that. He is the chair of the History and Political Thought Department and is the faculty in residence at the Honors Living Learning Community. He also curates our network of podcasts and video casts called the Qui Bono Casts, which always records these events that happen and puts them online. He is the two-time Qui Bono Professor of the Year, and he joins us tonight to lead a discussion about how to survive the apocalypse, Taoist and Christian advice compared. So please welcome Dr. Jeff Mallinson. Yeah, most, most anarchists end up dead, and so I would really hate to have you have a wonderful time and say, well, this is great, thank you, and then, you know, both the capitalists and the Bolshevists uh, all, all kill you, and then I, I, that's a lot of funerals to go to. I don't even go to your weddings. I have a policy against uh, going to, to student weddings because then I got to, you know, do more than a few. Anyway, um, a couple things. I'm wearing my um, I'm wearing my anarchy shirt here that I bought in Portland of all places. And it says, "Another world is possible." Another world is possible. That might be a good way for me to to think about how I would I would talk about what what this is. Uh, but another way I would say it is, outside of the church, there is no salvation, which is sounds like a very different thing, especially if you know some of the um, actual famous 19th century thinkers. Uh, but I'm gonna. I'm going to save it to the end. I'm going to make sure I write a note to myself. Outside of the church, there's no salvation. But again, I'll leave that for you for later. Um, but as an overview, here's the, here's the menu of what I want to, I want to cover for us tonight. Uh, first, this is, this is, these are the kind of the main beats. One, we are living in a time of, a, uh, of an apocalypse. I'm not going to say it's the apocalypse. I want to say it's an apocalypse. And second, both ancient and uh, ancient Chinese Taoists and early Christians offered advice for precisely such times. That was what they were trying to figure out how to, how to address with their ideas. And third, though these two types of uh, anarchy uh, are not identical, both are indeed forms of anarchism, and really the people that want to oppose that idea are primarily uh, Eastern European anarchists and, in fact, Chinese uh, communists who want to deny this, as I'll explain in a minute. So we're living in a time of an apocalypse. Both Taoist and early Christians offered advice for such times. Three, these types of advice are not identical, but are both indeed forms of anarchism. And then fourth, a key difference uh, here is that the Taoist approach teaches how to physically survive an apocalypse, uh, while uh, a life of freedom and happiness is there in both Christianity and, and the early Taoists. Christians teach how to lose your life in order to find it. So they're, they're both after the same kind of thing, a, a kind of salvation from uh, what Christians would call the prince of this world, the devil. Um, so it is an important theme, and it is not an incidental theme. It's not like I'm saying, I'm a Christian, and I also like punk music. Um, they might overlap or they might not. What I'm suggesting is that there is something inherently or, or uh, at the core of both ancient Taoist teaching and Christian teaching. And you might ask, why is that not something we all know? And the answer is, that is something that, that all of the people in charge would never want you to know, right? So if you're from China, God bless you, nobody was telling you that one of the greatest 
you know, heritages that you had, part of the, the philosophical tradition of China is, uh, is this Taoist anarchism. I've spent several summers in China, and as I'm talking to people, I think that we're going to have a wonderful time talking about Lao Tzu or Zhuangzi. Nobody knew who I was talking about because, in, in fact, they would, they would specifically say that was something that was erased from the history books, at least in the, the, the folks that I was talking to. And likewise, in Sunday school, I bet you never really got a long lesson on uh, the deep problems of government unless, and this is the weird hard part about this, unless you were part of uh, perhaps even a far-right Christian group, in which case you might have very much been told that the government was a problem. Um, and, and I want to say I, uh, I'm glad you're here. Uh, one of the great things is, uh, this is an opportunity for me to say, if you were wondering, oh, oh is that Professor Mallinson, is he a liberal? How dare you? How dare you? I'm rad. I'm radical. I'm rad. I mean, liberalism is, uh, is, is probably a bigger problem. As uh, a lot of my friends in the, in the kind of conversation would say, I remember uh, we were talking to uh, Michael Bournet, a uh, hip-hop artist, uh, who came out with an album this uh, weekend, by the way. Go check it out. He had come to talk to our students here at Honors LLC, and he was kind of, uh, kind of frustrated with me for thinking that maybe, maybe I was going to vote for uh, Biden. Uh, now, uh, anarchists don't tend to vote, but we do practice uh, defensive voting. So if you're going to vote for me to have my eyeballs plucked out, I am going to the polls, okay? And I'm going to vote no on that amendment to pluck my eyeballs out. So it's perfectly acceptable for me to do that for the same reason it's perfectly acceptable in uh, most anarchist thought to even be a pacifist or a nonviolent anarchist but also own a, a, a pump-action shotgun. So uh, that's for when you come into my house and try to uh, archie me. And what is this? Anarchy does not mean anti-government. Anarchy just simply means it is uh, trying to opt out of the system in which you have archies or archons uh, in the uh, you know in the old Greek concept. These over overlords. It's a uh, it's a theory, any theory really that is against um, a, a kind of domination system. And I'll explain why I think again this is this is very much part of not just part of, but, but central to the original teachings of Jesus and the original teachings of Lao Tzu and uh, Zhuangzi from uh, uh, ancient philosophical Taoism. But I said at first, to go back a little bit, that we are living in a time of apocalypse. And sometimes, growing up as an evangelical Christian, this would be something that I would hear a lot of. There's a lot of end times thinking. I remember uh, there's a guy named Raoul Reese or the, the kids over here at uh, uh, Calvary Chapel where, where my wife and I used to hang out. And they were always looking at the newspaper and saying, see, this is uh, Gog and Magog, and it's the end of the world. And the, uh, and the Antichrist was, was always somebody you know, that was in the newspaper. So if you're skeptical of me saying this is a time of apocalypse, I, I agree with you, especially if you, if you go to certain websites that talk about extremism. Uh, one of the things that is a mark of extremism, according to like the FBI, would be groups that think it's the end of the world. So now I'm you know, definitely in trouble because I'm saying it's the end of a kind of world. And that's why I didn't say it's the apocalypse, it's an apocalypse. But still, I recognize that this can be problematic for a lot of people, especially because it is associated with uh, sometimes violent and extremist groups thinking that there's this kind of collapse coming and so forth. Well, I'm not trying to be a fear monger, but I do think that the travels that, uh, that I've engaged in over the last few years have, have sobered me 
in a couple ways. One, if you, if you came to a Qui Bono talk I did a couple years ago, I was really hyped up on this idea of a kind of uh, maybe a libertarian uh, strain of anarchism, a kind of individualism. And yet I recognize that there, there are inherent problems in this, primarily the problem that if you want to do that, you will lose almost every time. So if you want to just be free by yourself, no one wants to let you do it. I may have mentioned a, a dude that was trying to live by himself naked on an island near Japan, a Japanese dude. Eventually they found him. They forcibly took him to an old folks home where he was forced to die there. Nobody wants you to be free even if you're not hurting anybody. So for the most part, that's not really a viable, viable option. But I want to think about like, what, why would I think that, that these are apocalyptic times? Spent time in China, and I realized I was going to go look for birds, but Mao Zedong killed all the birds. He had, it was actually, there was, a, there was a bounty on the birds because they were eating the grain, right? And so now there's no birds. And then we would go to places in China where they had cut down all the trees, kind of like Saruman, you know, for, for the war machine. And so, and so all of this beauty was just kind of destroyed by a kind of state capitalism. But I don't care, you know, you can, you can have your political, you know, ideas about this. The problem is the air tasted bad, right? The air tasted like the dying of this globe. And that was there. And then as I drove down from Portland, Portland was 113 degrees this summer, and that's weird. And I don't, like, I don't know enough about this stuff. I'll leave it to the, the STEM friends. But uh, that's weird, right? I don't, that's, that's not a thing I, I feel great about. And as I was driving down, it kind of seemed like Adats, you know, from Star Wars had taken a little shot at everywhere between Portland and down here. It was just fire after fire. Had, had scorched the places, and then I would drive by waterways, and, and the boats were kind of stuck in the mud as the, the water was, was low. I saw tent cities that were expansive, tent cities. Again, we saw fires, low water levels, toxic algae blooms that threatened to, to kill my dog, and ultimately nobody really wants to confront these issues because the, the facing of them is... Uh, is something that we don't psychologically have really the capacity for. It's a, it's, a, it's a scary thing to think about. But I really do believe that, that whether or not you like it or whether I like it, I think ultimately there will be an unveiling. This is what apocalypse means. Apocalypse or the revelation is just kind of the peeling back of the veil to see what is going on behind the scenes. And so because of this, I think that uh, a lot of the institutions of society for your, your generation will be, uh, will be called uh, to account whether or not that was what you came in with to uh, Concordia as a freshman say. Wh whatever your political views were at first, at some point, and this is just me, maybe I'm wrong, I think that you're going to be forced to reckon with the apocalypse, uh, the unveiling of the systems, what my reggae friends call Babylon. Uh, that it will fall, it will fall for natural reasons, and that, that's something that the, the Taoists of course will talk about, but the word I like better than apocalypse is Armageddon. Armageddon is especially popular amongst the, uh, the, the Rastafarians, who are honorary anarchists even if they don't read 19th century Eastern European political theorists. They understand it at an intuitive level. Or you see this with uh, Public Enemy or something. You'll see in a lot of musical traditions a kind of radical spirit that is not informed by uh, Bakunin or something that, that do un understand this. And one of those terms, Armageddon, I think is really helpful because it comes, it, it comes to us through Scripture, but it's not something that's constantly in Scripture. You see it in, for instance, Revelation 16.6, where it talks about Har Megiddo. Really, it's a tell, tell Megiddo, 
Um, and this is this mountain. It's in northern Israel. It's not really a mountain. It's a, it's a tell, which is a mound or a hill created by generations of, uh, and generations of people having their, their military outpost get buried, and then the next one comes along, and then they're the boss, and then they fall apart, and they get buried. So if you think about the, the poem Ozymandias, you know, or something, it's, it's this idea that I think is really rich in the, in the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse of John, that's basically saying um, that from the perspective of the Christian, from the perspective of the people of God, all these empires, they might be scary in the, in the short term, but in the long run, they will fall. They just will fall through natural processes. You see this also in Taoist art, where sometimes you will see these very beautiful mountains, um, and then you will see armies marching like little ants. And the, and the implication for the Taoist art is that the, the ants are also part of nature, but in this case, the armies are part of nature, and they're not bigger than the Tao itself or nature itself. So they will also be temporary. But I said that both ancient and early Christian Taoists, uh, I'm sorry, both ancient Taoists and early Christians um, had advice for our times. And if you, read them, uh, if you read these texts in light of that, I think it's actually very helpful. It is not the only way to read these texts. Certainly there's a spiritual element of it. And as I said, I'm not a liberal, nor am I a, a liberation theologian. And the primary reason is while I appreciate the liberation theologians privileging interpretive traditions of scripture from the perspective of the poor, I think one of the ways that they go wrong, for the most part, is thinking that they can collaborate with the state to solve the problems of economic uh, inequality, right? So that, that there is a materialist, uh, secular, statist answer to these injustices. So we might have the same enemy or the same injustice as a problem, uh, but, but uh, to use the state as the answer is also something that has been very problematic in our travels, my travels. Um, I went to Cuba, went to Cuba, and one of the things I found is a lot of people who thought they were anarchists wearing Che Guevara shirts. But I was standing with a gentleman whose family members were assassinated up against a wall right there for being freedom fighters that were too artsy, right? Um, that is, that over and over again what happens is there's an original revolutionary spirit where anarchists, Christian uh, anarchists and, and artists want to, to side with revolutionaries, but the revolutionaries tend to want to say, we're going to do a once and for all solution um, to the problems of injustice, and it involves us taking over the state. And so in Cuba, if you, you know, it's actually really good for you if you're a young Marxist to go to Cuba and see how that works for you. You'll meet people who were in jail. I met somebody in, who went to jail for seven years for selling baby chickens out of his backyard to survive. I met people who ate their shoes during the 90s uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. They, um, they had a hard time getting actual food. And so, uh, que pais was, was, a, was a phrase I heard a lot. They're not all that thrilled with the, with the revolution in that regard. And this is what's, what kind of makes people not care anymore, right? So, we know that kind of a heartless capitalism doesn't help. Uh, a lot of poor people. We know that, uh, that when you go then to a, a certain kind of state-run socialism, it's even worse. So I guess there's nothing to be done. Now let's go back to the ancients, though, because this, they understood that this was going to happen. Our moderns, not so much, but in the past, they understood this. 
the book that I've been translating, I'm going to a third run of this because I, I, I keep trying to get a little bit better at understanding the Chinese, and then I go back over it with uh, Stacy. But the, the whole book, it, you know, is 81 chapters, very short chapters, uh, allegedly written by a dude named Lao Tzu, who was kind of tired of working as a bureaucrat, as the story goes. So he was cruising out of town, and a, a watchman at the gate said, hey, wait a minute, aren't you the, the great sage Lao Tzu? Would you please give us your wisdom before you bail and go fishing? And he was just going to get out of Dodge because he realized that uh, Babylon was falling, which is kind of, you know, what you do if you're, if you're paying attention. And they said, well, write this stuff down. And, and so he does. Uh, there, there's more help, though, from a guy named Xuanzu, who is probably more likely to be historically accessible. Some people aren't even sure if Lao Tzu exists. Maybe he was the name given to a variety of, uh, of older philosophical thinkers. But Xuanzu is a lot more fun. And uh, one of the things I like about Xuanzu is there was a story where two uh, government officials, two ministers in the government, wanted him to come and help. They said, well, you're, you're good. You understand all this stuff. Why don't you come work for the government with us? And Xuanzu said, you know, I think in your master's office there, there's a box with a turtle shell. And I said, yeah, that's, that's true. He said, um, you know, that used to be a living turtle. Uh, he was a sacred turtle, so they killed him, and they, they used this turtle shell for divination. They try to figure out the future using the turtle shell. He says, I, I'm pretty sure if I come and work for the government, I'm going to end up dead like that tortoise, or that turtle, rather. And what I'd prefer is exactly what that turtle would prefer, to be sliding through the mud. So I'm going to go fishing and have my feet in the mud instead of getting involved in government. And I think that's, that's, that's the kind of anarchy I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the sex pistols. I'm not talking about punks throwing uh, bricks through windows. Sometimes, as we'll see, that may be the way to go <laughs> for some people. Um, but what are the real, the ancient Taoists, uh, what were they after? They were trying to provide an alternative to two groups, and I think there's analogs to us today. The first group they were trying to, to sidestep were the Confucians. I kind of want to put those guys in the same category as kind of modern conservative Republicans. And then they also wanted to go against the legalists. And I'll put those uh, in the category of kind of status Democrats that want to kind of fix everything through, uh, through legislation. They want to legislate these things. The Confucians were traditionalists, and they thought if we just if we just stuck with the traditions of the ancestors, we would keep our conservative uh, hierarchical roles, and this is going to preserve society. And in many ways, it's a pretty good option. It's a reasonable option. And it served the, the Chinese people well in many, in many cases. There was another group, and these were people that tended not to be part of the historically uh, empowered uh, governments. They were the legalists. And the legalists thought that the codification of laws and harsh punishments for breaking the laws was going to keep society together, right? And they seem to be kind of the only, the only two options that we have. And if you're, if you're like me, if you, if you grew up thinking, I'm not so sure I'm fully bought into the Republican political theory, uh, but I, if, especially if you're Californian, sometimes you might think, I'm, I'm not really a fan of the Democrats because they, um, they tend to kind of create a lot of rules. Like for me, when I was growing up, I just thought Democrats wanted to put a lot of labels on, on floaties in the pool, you know? Uh, so nobody got sued. I'm like, I don't know if this is like fixing the inequities of society, but you know, five-year-olds aren't gonna drown, so I guess, you know, vote Democrat, right? Maybe it's that. But 
Um, this does not mean, though, that uh, there aren't alliances with these folks. And so I want to say, like, no matter who you are, like I said, I don't want you to, I'm not trying to convert you to my political theory, and I want to align with you in so many ways. If there are things that are worth saving, I want to conserve them with you conservatives. If there are things that need changing, I want to be free with you liberals. But ultimately, I think that the, the core of the, the Christian and the ancient Taoist messages is that there's something ineffective about law as a codified thing outside of what I, what I care about, which is virtue theory. But in law, the Chinese word for law, or fa, I'm sorry about my pronunciation, it's always terrible, um, it, the characters relate to uh, water and the drawing out of water, and it, it doesn't make a ton of sense. But there are a variety of explanations for how this came to be, but I tend to like at least the uh, illustration, at least, of this idea that in the middle of towns you would have a big cauldron of water and you would heat it up so that you could purify the water. Then your family would go and you draw the water from this cauldron in the middle of town. And the, the story goes that you would then write the laws of the society on that water, kind of like when we go into a workplace, you get out of your cubicle, you walk over to the, uh, the water cooler, and there's the stuff about, you know, uh, uh, minimum wage. You know, like the, the rules about, um, about, like, the workplace. And, and those are really good rules. I, I love those rules. I, I'm, we're, we're just on the heels here of Labor Day. I know growing up, I heard a lot of negative stuff about labor unions, but I like eight-hour work weeks. I like, uh, I'm sorry, eight-hour work days, 40-hour work weeks. But um, so there's a lot of things that they, that they gave us. But as anybody knows that, that's worked a minimum wage job at Best Buy, um, that's not a thriving life. That's just not a crappy as hell life, right? So the laws can't really fix everything, but they at least create some basic standards. But what the Taoists found was that these laws written on the water cooler did not create a harmonious society. What in fact happened was that people started debating about what counted according to these laws, right? So the laws created factions and debates. So you're sitting around the water cooler and you're debating politics, but you're not loving your neighbor. In Taoism, there is Tao uh, Jia, when, which is uh, philosophical Taoism, and then there's alchemical and religious Taoism called Tao Jiao. And those are two different things, and I don't, uh, I, I'm not interested in the alchemical stuff, although it's fascinating. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about a solution to the meltdown of society that was, was something we saw pri previously in the Zhao Dynasty, which is 1027 to 256 BCE, right towards the end of it, 403 to 221, this is known as the Warring States period. And so if you're worried at all, you're a young person, you're saying society seems to be kind of on edge, it's a little bit of a, there's some tension here, that's what they were feeling, that's what they were worried about. So people just like you, they'd get educated and then they wanted jobs. And so what kind of job did they want? They decided, I'm gonna go work as an advisor to a government official or to a king, you know, that sort of thing. And so, um, so people had all their, you know, there could be legalists, Confucians, or Taoists, but they were trying to gain an audience. And in that mix, the Tao, uh, the Tao Te Ching and other texts were basically, rep I think, representative of texts that were trying to teach feudal rulers to get back to an earlier era where they had this role of tribal chieftain or like a wise man, you know, somebody who was a leader but was not an overlord. And this is an important corrective. I mean, I don't even care what kind of anarchist you might be talking to. 
Um, but ultimately, for the Chinese and the early Christian tradition, there's nothing wrong with somebody being a wise elder, right? We have presbyteroi in the Christian tradition. There are elders that are leaders. They are luminaries. They are sages. They're not people that lord it over us. They're people that help guide us through the madness of society. So anarchism in that sense is not chaos, although that's what that people want to talk about. Now, in the 19th century, I, I think I mentioned these names, but you've got uh, Mikhail uh, Bakunin and uh, Peter Kropotkin. And these cats were almost always um, interested in the idea that violence was a possible uh, solution to the problem. And one of the reasons is, is just, uh, just history. As I said, anarchists tend to all get killed, and the pacifist anarchists tend to get killed the fastest. So if you want to do something about Nazis, the idea would be uh, you've got to intimidate the Nazis back uh, so that they don't get too high on the hog, they don't get too uh, comfortable marching through the streets. So you might have seen, who, who was the guy, uh, Spencer, uh, Richard Spencer that got punched? Um, that's a thing that, that some anarchists do, right? They'll, they'll punch Nazis on a Thursday afternoon. But the idea is that, that some would say, the 19th century ones would say, no, an actual revolution is the way to go. And people that are nonviolent are weak and are getting in the way, right? So that in that sense, there is uh, unfortunately a lot of negativity against Chinese anarchists uh, of the Taoist tradition and Christian anarchists, first of all, because they're typically unwilling to use violence. But I would argue, and I believe that uh, it's, it's actually consistent with the theory, uh, that to use violence uh, to achieve anarchist ends is a, is a contradiction. That's the contradiction. Christian anarchism is not a contradiction. I think they're entailed. But I don't believe that um, nonviolent anarchism is an oxymoron. I think that violent anarchism is an oxymoron. Because violence is coercion, right? So. Uh, if the number one principle of anarchism is a, uh, is a rejection of overpowering people or, or being an overlord, then certainly to uh, impose this on the society through violence seems problematic at least. Uh, this guy John Rapp is, uh, I think, really good at this. He, he wrote a book called Taoism and Anarchism, Critiques of State Autonomy in Ancient and Modern China. Um, and... Uh, and I think what, what, he, what he shows is, is pretty helpful here. And that is that in, in China, the reason they, uh, they didn't, read it, didn't, didn't read these old texts, even though it seemed like they might be helpful for the, uh, the, the communist revolution, is that ultimately um, they reject uh, the, the, the centralized state uh, administration of the revolution. And so even though early on they might have been um, working together, it, was, it did not go well. It did not go well for Russian anarchists. It did not go well, certainly, for Chinese anarchists. So what, what did they miss? You turn to the text itself. Um, Lao Tzu, the Tao Te Ching, these are uh, the translations that Stacy and I are working on. This is chapter 53. These chapters are very short. And he says, uh, Lao Tzu says, even with only half my wits about me, if I travel the way of the Tao, it will be a smooth ride, unless I stray off course. For it is a safe, wide-open highway. Oh, but men love to get sidetracked. Politicians vainly, I'm sorry, politicians' vanity projects get funded while infrastructures crumble and natural resources get depleted. They wear expensive suits, own trendy status symbols, uh, drink the best whiskey, 
dine at exclusive restaurants, and have more toys than they have time to play with. This is white-collar piracy. It is most definitely not what it means to surf the, drow uh, surf the Dow. Chapter 58. When governments are non-intrusive, the citizens are tranquil and honest. When governments create an oppressive surveillance state, the citizens are dejected and scheming. I should mention you could see that I'm using anachronisms on purpose. There are like 250 translations of the Tao Te Ching, so we didn't try to go for that kind of translation. Um, good fortune often depends on the misfortune of others. Mis misfortune is often latent within good fortune. Who can know the future? There is no inevitable way this will play out. I'm going to pause there. I believe that the reason that people don't, they kind of laugh at me when I say that I'm into this stuff. The, the reason they laugh is because they think it, it is inevitably not something that can work. But I would say that one of the things that, uh, that this betrays is a lack of a, a larger historical consciousness. The system that we have is about 600 years old. Basically, we're still dealing with the understanding of capital and banking that arises with the, uh, with the banking families of Italy. And so it's not always been this way. And so if, in fact, it turns out that this thing kind of runs its course, that wouldn't be that strange if we're talking about thousands of years of human history. We certainly do have overlords. We have god kings in the ancient Near East. But the idea that it's inevitable is the tool that's used to control you, that this is the way it has to be. Oh, I'm sorry, honey. I know you're, uh, you know, you're, you're idealistic. But someday you'll learn that really we do have to eat people uh, to live, you know. Um, and it's sad, right, that we've got babies in cages. And it's sad that we don't really have time to care about what's going on in Ethiopia right now. But, you know, it's just inevitable. It continues, 58. Established principles from the experts, strangely, turn out to be misguided. Well-intentioned ideas turn out to be diabolical. The more we learn, the more we realize how confused we are. So the sage is upright without being judgy, self-disciplined without being a disciplinarian, radiant without being glitzy. Chapter 57. When governing, when governing, be straightforward. When outfoxing enemies, use cunning. Manage the world by not trying to control it. How do I know this is the way? Like this. Now, my favorite thing all throughout the Tao Te Ching, there, there's this phrase that we're keeping it just as like this. There's this kind of intuitiveness to it. Just look, like this. Or it's about what he's about to say. He continues, the more legalistic and restrictive a regime is, the poorer the people become. When people turn to stocking up on weapons, the country descends into chaos. When people start scheming in a culture, absurdity abounds. When you see rules posted everywhere, it's a sure sign that lawlessness is rampant. Kind of like, you know, if, you, if you've been somewhere here on campus and somebody's using a sign over the toilet, flush twice, but they use all caps and underline and bold, that means people are pooping and not flushing, okay? So it's not a good sign when you see lots of rules, at least according to this way of thinking. As a sage once said, I surf the Tao and leave people to wake up on their own. I rest in tranquility and let the people attain their own alignment. I am not intrusive, yet the people discover abundance. I rest in contentment and let people discover naturalness for themselves. When the people don't have to live in fear of an authoritarian power, a greater power arises within them. Don't constrain how people live or limit how they make their living. Since a leader does not disempower the people, the people will not disempower the leader. 
And by the way, this part here, some scholars would point to the idea that there are textual uh, adaptations over time, and I'll explain why sometimes this goes towards government or saying that there's such a thing as a, as a virtuous leader in a moment. So the sage takes herself seriously without being self-important and loves herself without being narcissistic. She embraces the former but discards the latter. For our translation, by the way, we, we uh, put the sage always as a she and the, the man is always the man. <laughs> the people are hungry. They hunger because all their superiors take a heavy cut. The people are revolutionary. They revolt because those in power oppress them. I'll pause there. Plato saw this. All the great thinkers of the, uh, the, the Core 201 that you read saw this, really. That it's not a matter of whether you think there should be a revolution or not. At some point, when you have nothing to live for, you will revolt. At some point, when people are starving to death and children don't have uh, a medicine, uh, it's going to hurt you if you're hanging out in Orange County with an Apple Watch, right? Like they're lining me up against the, like, all right, people with the Apple Watches, they're up against the wall first. I don't have to believe in revolution. It's coming for me at some point if I don't take this seriously. This is what they're saying. They're not saying that you should revolt. They're saying that these are natural. That's the way the flow of the Tao is. Because the people, it says, the people aren't afraid to die in a revolution when their dominators live in excessive extravagance, yet they can barely afford to exist. They have nothing to lose. So leaders who do not pursue obscene wealth are better than those who only love extravagance. Now, uh, for some of you, a side little uh, advertisement, I don't want to take too many more people on, but some of us uh, are working on this project of local history uh, about this guy, Isaac Frazee, who wrote a utopian uh, text that's very much in the line of this kind of thinking. Uh, it's called Evil Love. And he was the guy who actually started the, um, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, what, what, the pageant of the masters, thank you. Um, and he, uh, he was kind of part of this bohemian uh, Christian anarchist art scene down here. And we don't know a lot about it because, of course, all of that gets taken over by people who definitely don't want to emphasize that. Uh, but if, if you're at all, thank you. If you're at all interested, we're going to be hanging out at the uh, Honors LLC on Mondays at 8. And we're going to be working on a critical edition of his book. Uh, but the idea is that anarchists often were, were fond of talking about or writing utopian literature for the same reason I got this shirt. That is, another way is possible or another society is possible. It doesn't mean that they're going to achieve it the way Marxist-Leninists think that they can achieve it. Here comes a revolution, then anarchy will come. They don't believe in that. They believe that it's an ongoing fight. There's always dominators that want to take your stuff. So we have to join together to constantly be fighting the bullies. It's kind of an ongoing thing. But uh, the idea that you would have a utopian text or utopian literature isn't to suggest that that utopia is, uh, is conceivably something that you could just institute and keep forever. It's the idea that by forcing yourself to think about these things imaginatively, you can break free of the idea that the world we're living in, the way we're living in it, is inevitable. I've read too much from the Tao Te Ching, but here's one more because this is the key. I want you to imagine this utopia. This is chapter 80 of the Tao Te Ching. The ideal society is a modest country with small, close-knit villages. That localism. They store sufficient weapons, but only for self-defense. They respect life and death, so even though they have vehicles, they don't use them for foreign invasion. Though they are well-armed, they don't have to put their armies on display. Instead, they celebrate and record the simple joys of life together. 
Their food is delightful. Their clothes are artful. Their dwellings are tranquil. Their customs are mirthful. They can see other towns in the distance. They can hear neighboring roosters crowing and dogs barking. Yet throughout the course of their lives, they never go over to complain or quarrel. Now, um, this to me is really important because some of my best friends that I had when I was a student here are still, you know, really uh, hardcore libertarians. And I think that one of the problems that we face today politically is we've got all these different groups that, that do care about freedom, but they want to do it in a different way. The good news for an, an anarchist is we don't have to prescribe how you want to run your society. So if you want to operate where everybody gets free health care, go set up your village. Call it Tustin, right? The problem is when you get some big state that's going to try to manage everything, that's where the corruption sets in. And so instead of thinking about this as, oh, I, that sounds like too radical or too, too different, the idea is that my libertarian friends who are anarcho-capitalists can play that game if they want. That's beautiful. And if I want to have a place where, uh, you know, we, uh, we all eat soybeans and uh, take care of unwanted babies, it's called the farm, it's a, it's a commune in uh, Tennessee, you can do that too, right? Just don't invade my commune, right? Um, but here's the thing that happens. For the, uh, for the Taoists, where does this go? One of the key principles of uh, philosophical Taoism is this phrase, Wu Wei. It's, it's kind of like going with the flow or going with nature. Uh, this idea, idea of poo, poo is like an uncarved block. Sometimes they use the word uncarved block, but it's more just like an uncarved piece of wood. There's like all this possibility, right? So it says be like, be natural, be like the un, un, uncarved wood. Um, that's, that's the way to go. But the, uh, the other thing that's going on is this idea of the Tao, the way, right? So what's the, what's the flow? Both of these are important to philosophical uh, Taoism. But one of the things that goes wrong, unfortunately, and I think this is a danger for all of us today, is that um, at some point, the Taoists became nihilistic. Nihilistic um, Taoists end up um, basically saying, because politics is natural, which it is, right? So like animals, primates are running around, dogs are running together. There's uh, one dog that's the mean dog and is biting the other dogs, and so that's natural. So um, after the Warring States period, o over time, there would crop up these Taoists who emphasized Wu Wei, going with the flow, to say, I'm going to go with tyrants. I am not going to challenge uh, unjust leaders because power is itself an aspect of nature. And they got brought into uh, the empire. And so, you know, when I was in China, we went into these palaces and we were shocked to see, because we don't know a lot of the Chinese characters, there's a lot of them. Like, I recognize these. It says Wu Wei. Why would an empress have Wu Wei? Because what they were saying is the way of nature is the strongest dog gets to be in charge. And so there is a, unfortunately, a way in which tyrants would also take this on. And that's another reason why a lot of the more modern anarchists in China didn't like the Taoists, because they associated it with this. And of course, then there were the Maoists that, uh, that uh, actually thought that Taoism, the Taoist anarchy was too pessimistic. That is, there's a sense in Lao Tzu that you can't change the world anyway. And this then takes us to Christianity. Because in a weird way, um, secular communism is a, a godless form of Christianity. And if you don't see it, I don't know what you're not reading. Because what the Marxists want to do is exactly what the Christians want to do except they want to make it a materialist, atheistic version of it. And they want to do it with a gun. So Jesus says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, share and share alike, right? But now I'm going to put an AK to your head to make sure that you do it. That's, that's the key dis difference. But there is, a, there is a hope in Marxism. 
there's kind of a cult to it that says like, you know, come on, little red book, let's march together. It's a lot of fun. It's, it fires you up, right? In a way, the Taoists aren't that excited about that. Taoists, the, the, the Taoist anarchists were a little bit nervous. If you were getting all fired up and you were marching in step with a little red book over your head, that by itself was a problem, right? That's not, not a good sign. It's not a good sign if it's Cuba, Russia, or anywhere. But, um, but Christians do bring a hope to it. And so I want to turn to Christianity, and I won't read as many texts, because mainly because I think most of you will have, have more familiarity with it. Um, but where do the Christian Taoists show up? Well, or the Christian anarchists show up. I would argue in the first 300 years, that's what it was. And then it doesn't really show up again until the 16th century, unfortunately for my tradition, with those who didn't side with Luther. This was people who thought they were on Luther's side, but they were the radicals, those who were part of the Peasants' Revolt. And Luther is able to survive his reform by siding with the magistrate, the magisterial reformation. But what is Latin? Where, 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 somebody, somebody tell me where the, the Latin for magister, uh, what does that mean? It's a master. We don't like masters in anarchy. So the magisterial reformation and magisterial reformation seems a little bit uh, problematic, right? That's, that's, that's part of it. But uh, you do see it there. And you see it, of course, in like more recently in Leo Tolstoy. Uh, uh, Bonhoeffer, um, certainly Søren Kierkegaard. There, there are a lot of these characters that, that at least imbibe some of this. But I will only, I will only uh, give you two texts from, the, from the, the New Testament, my sacred text. And the first is Luke 4. Jesus, he goes into the desert to, to fight the devil, right? And he's going to have this confrontation. And what does he do? You can argue, and I think that Dostoevsky does this very clearly in the section of the brothers Karamazov, which is called the Grand Inquisitor. He says specifically that Jesus is condemned in this hypothetical story by the Catholic Church for not taking money, power, and glory. That they did something, that Jesus did something wrong. So Jesus gets condemned by the Inquisition for not taking power, money, and glory. But Jesus does reject these things. He rejects all of them in the form of, you know, bread and worshiping Satan and so forth. But then I don't know if many of you really kind of put these two together. I didn't for a while. When he's done with the temptation, he then says this. This is the thesis statement of his ministry. Luke 4, 18. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he's talking this language of jubilee, and that's that. If you take Luke 4 to be his thesis statement for at least what his agenda of this kingdom is, he talks about the poor, the prisoners, the blind and the oppressed, and the relief of debt. And he doesn't say, I'm coming to tell you that if you join my religious organization, you won't go to hell. That's not what he says. He's saying, I'm setting people free. And the reason I never even read that before is I said, oh, that's just Marxist. I, I don't want to touch that because that's like, you know, socialism or something. But this is what he does. And then in Matthew 20, he's, he's with the, the disciples and they're arguing, okay, we're going to be part of this new church. And what are they fighting about? Who's going to be the overlord in the new church? Who's going to be the dominator in this new kingdom? And Jesus calls him together and he says, quote, this is Matthew 20, 25, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones are tyrants over them. It will not be so among you. But whoever wishes to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man came not to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So they knew what was going on. That then concludes 
our time together in terms of, I'd love to ask, have you ask questions, but Acts 2. This is what the early church understood that it was, Acts 2. All who believed, this is Acts 2.44, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread uh, at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now, what is this? This is what uh, the anarchists call mutual aid. And this is where I will turn to one guy from the 19th century, uh, Peter Kropotkin, who looks at uh, the evolutionary theory of Darwin. And he says, you know what's going on? The capitalists in England are saying that, uh, look, it's just natural for us to be, uh, to be competitive. Uh, there's poor, but, uh, poor people and there's rich people, but that's just the way the world works. Selfishness is a virtue. Selfishness is what makes the world work. But Kropotkin shows that actually if you look at actual biological uh, like organisms in, in, in their way of trying to survive, um, there's, a, there's a mutual aid. So we had, uh, uh, Dr. Schultz knows, we had a guy out, uh, uh, what was his name again? Uh, uh, Peter Stamets, uh, Paul Stamets, who's a mycologist, amateur mycologist. And he was showing these, uh, uh, this research where he was showing how um, the, the mycelium, the, uh, the mushrooms, are communicating with trees and they're bringing nutrients to the trees and then they're, and they're passing it back and forth. That the way that they survive, the way that organisms survive is often through uh, cooperation. Or if you've ever seen those videos where there's a, a bunch of wildebeest get, gathering together to fight off a lion that's trying to attack the, the little baby wildebeest, this is how human beings survive and it's certainly how, how human beings have survived in community. This is not everybody trying to be exactly the same. This is the idea that uh, that competition or being lonely is what's going to kill you. And you see this in his text in 1902, Mutual Aid, A Factor of Evolution. So he's kind of bringing this out as something that seems like a really new insight. But it's not a new insight. It's an old insight, but we didn't see it because most of us grew up in the wake of the Cold War. And so for us, whenever I saw that text, all I could see was, don't touch that because that's communist and communism leads to the execution of, of Christians. It's atheistic, you know, uh, in, in theory. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. But um, ultimately, this is, this is only something that's in our historical context when we, when we see it this way. Um, sorry, I'm going along. Um, what happened to Christian anarchy? The first, the Civil War. I'll end here. The first, the Civil War, because in the Civil War, all the Christian anarchists were so against the uh, slavery that they sided with empire in the form of the federal government. They normally would have been fans of state rights, states' rights. But the states were saying, well, we would like to hold slaves. And they said, well, that's not compatible with our view. So they, they ended up siding with the union to fight the slaveholders, if that makes sense. And so it was kind of not popular then. And then, just a few decades later, with the, with the Russians, everybody was kind of interested there, and they realized, ah, um, there's too much of a similarity there with this really atrocious thing that went on with the Bolshevik rev Revolution. And yet, what, what's this business about mutual aid? This takes me back to the beginning. I know I maybe said a bunch of theoretical stuff, but here's the real, the real upshot of it. If you want to survive this crazy existence for the next 50 years, you need friends. And if you need friends, you need people that love you unconditionally, that you're going to, you're going to have people that love you in a community that is informed by the way of Jesus. It is not either this kind of this worldly political arrangement or 
the eternal life. Because of eternal life in Jesus, the people of God said, we actually have to pay, we have to help the poor in Jerusalem so that they don't die. Um, it's just the same thing in China. If you, uh, we, were, we were doing some work in China, people that wanted to be a part of our like kind of VBS, they might be not given jobs in the, in the, in the post office, right? So what do you do? How do you survive with the per that kind of persecution? You, you work through mutual aid. So I help you when you're getting soft persecution for being a Christian, and you help me for the soft persecution of being a Christian, because our only other alternative is to suckle at the teat of the state, which is Beelzebub, Babylon, and we're going to bring it down together, friends. I have to end there because I'm out of time, but thank you very much. My point being, you cannot find salvation even in this life apart from the church, so go find you some church. Thank you. I'll take questions, but you can feel free to just walk away or get pizza at any point. Yes, sir. So my understanding of uh, Taoism is that uh, coercion is bad. My understanding of the proposed solution is less clear. So can you, is it that we're supposed to separate from society and have our own sort of smaller society? This is the best question. So the, the question again is, is like, should you just separate out? And the first thing is some people thought that the Taoist was going to go like be a monk in the woods. And that is not the answer. The answer is the village of people bringing their gifts and their vocations together. So it's not, you don't want to be in isolation. That's definitely the key. And so it's not a coerced thing. It's you're going to romance people into a better way. You want to come to my village because my village is going to honor you and your gifts and skills and your freedom. And so we're going to be free together, and it's going to be a, a place that the, the concept is thriving. Freedom brings a kind of thriving to be your best uh, vocational self. Does that make sense? Well, I would say good. You don't have to take them. Uh, the, um, yeah, Peter Kropotkin and uh, uh, Mikhail Bakunin, these are, the, these are the atheistic versions of the Eastern Europeans. Um, but there are, uh, the, the best Christian version is Jacques Ellul, E-L-L-U-L. -L -L. And that's the only place you need to go if you want to know what's like the Christian narrative. Because I didn't mention that. Uh, basically, basically, he shows that the first uh, 11 chapters of Genesis are anarchist. It's saying the whole point of uh, Abraham's faith is he says, you know what, I'm going to leave the city. Because the city was dominated by the God kings. They said that they were semi-divine. And uh, it was brutal. And they, you know, you'd have, what, the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is a real thing. We can see these things. They're ziggurats. And so um, when, when, it, when we say Abraham steps out in faith, it's not just some weird thing that he does. He's stepping out into God's way of being more in line with nature, and so it's nomadic. And you see uh, another text would not quite be the same. Um, I forget who wrote it. It was called Ishmael. Does anyone know who wrote Ishmael? It's like Daniel, Ishmael. Um, it's actually about a, it's a fictional text. But he basically reinterprets, he, he reinter so, so he, he says, I'll, I'll, I'll do it this way, ah, Daniel Quinn, I Ishmael, this would be good for your literary friends, because it's a, it's a novel. Why does, what does he ask, why does Cain kill Abel? Why does Cain kill Abel? He's jealous, but what, is, what, what did Abel offer God? Of what? He offers him the best and the first of not meat. Who's the best? Cain, I'm sorry, if we're getting it wrong, Cain offers grains. So what Ishmael, the text Ishmael, Daniel Quinn says is, 
this is a rejection of the agricultural revolution with the taskmasters whipping you in the big cities. So if you want to have all these massive, like massive farms, not like the local farm, whereas what does, what does Abel do? He's a pastoralist and he's got the sheep. So the idea being <clears throat> like the Messiah of Tanzania, they got it right. They've got, they've got their limited livestock. It's not like, it's not the enslaved animals all like piled up. It is, you're, you're grazing and what are you doing? You're going with nature. You're not like forcibly messing with the land. You're, you're, you're working alongside of it. Hunter-gatherers are the best. That's Adam and Eve. Can't go back to it. The worst is the agricultural revolution, at least up to chapter 11, according to Jacques Ellul. Was Joseph a good mass farm? Well, the whole thing gets, like, jo no, Joseph, what, what, why does Joseph, why is Joseph, no, he's an accountant, and where does Joseph go? He's going to Egypt. Why is he in Egypt? Because it's an empire that's got, it's got the big agriculture. That's good, right? So you want that. But then what happens, the people of Israel, the whole second part, okay, so movie one, get out of, get out of uh, Ur of the Chaldees, movie two, oh crap, we're back in empire again. So it's anarchist again because the Exodus is saying we're not doing this. And the 12 tribes of Israel going into the judges, according to at least Elul, is not a bad thing. The, that's actually, if you, could, if you could live according to God's way, then that would be your best. But you can't do it, so what does everybody do with Samuel? They beg, they beg for Arki. And they say, don't, you don't want Arki. And so even the best kings, they, they, take your, they, they take your wife and kill you. David, David's the best, of, like one of the best of them, like not Josiah. So you're saying then that the struggle of anarchy and the lure of archy is that to be an anarchist is difficult in the sense that you must go against the grain of your society on a large scale, and anarchy, or archy, whatever, um, allows you to relinquish control to someone else, and thus, even if you don't have a better life, you have an easier life. I guess if I wasn't flustered by technology and the fact that we're all sitting sideways like that, you know that place at, uh, at um, Knott's Berry Farm, where the water goes uphill, that's kind of what I'm, next time maybe we'll face this way. Um, I am 47 years old, and I have experienced incredible dread and anxiety and terror about economic stuff, about my own life, my own kids being able to survive, why it doesn't clear up here, why the haze is burning my eyes. So I get, like, I get scared, so I want, I want to hand over my fear to somebody else, and it's totally masochistic. It's like, all right, you be in charge, I'm, I, I, can't, I can't do this, and it's, a, it's a very alluring, it's very attractive. Yeah, so what do you do if you're a Christian anarchist? So the first thing you can't do is like say, okay, I'm gonna like, like redesign all of society. It's actually pretty pleasant in this one sense. It's terrifying. The first thing is you gotta find friends. That's the one thing. You gotta find friends that are like, oh, let's, let's work on this together. And we find friends to help us to say, what do we have that we can share with each other in, non, in a non-communist way? You got some cheese? I got nothing. I, I know about philosophy, but like, all right, if you want that, I, <clears throat> I'll trade, I, I could do some things. Um, no, there's actually a lot of things that anarchists have accomplished because if you think that they're trying to inaugurate a new state, that's not going to work. But what do you got? Um, today, you can work usually, and you don't have to have a hierarchical dress code. Uh, the uh, anarchists have won in these areas. The, decrim the decriminalization of drugs, so you don't have like a disproportionate. I mean, America has the greatest um, like proportion of, of its citizens in prisons. We've got privatized prisons. We've got uh, racial inequity. That is something that you can, you can confront. Um, without over, like overthrowing the government with machine guns, right? You could say, like, no, we're gonna, we're gonna do prison reform. And so that's been done. Prison reform's always been a part of it since Godwin. 
um, in uh, one of the early like English English guys. Um, the, uh, uh, freedom for schools. This is something that is sometimes tricky for me because sometimes when like some of you are homeschooled, and I'm really glad. Some of you are homeschooled, and I'm not so glad. Like. Some of it is like liberation and some of it's abuse and I can't really figure out how, but it's not my call. So um, the, the uh, working towards the ability for families to choose to go to a classical Christian school is part of the struggle. Um, to go here as opposed to getting, let's say, a society where they've, they've made it so that you can't come here because you've got to go to a state school if you're, if you're going to get funding. Those would be things that are very difficult for some anarchists, especially those who think that you have to oppose Christianity. Uh, but but that, that's, that's something that you do. And so we do this. Because in one way, in one sense, like this is not like an easy conversation anywhere because the liberals or the conservatives, they want to keep things under control. But if you have a kind of a freedom in Christ to at least explore the ideas, that's what I think is the value of a Christian university, for instance. So would you say then that modern anarchist movements rejection of Christianity comes mainly from their perception of Christianity as a dogmatic institution yeah no so the question is is it, yeah, is the dogmatic institution no um, it's actually just straight up historical especially in Russia right so even when even when the when the Soviet Union falls we're like yay um, we, we get to have like Christianity back. So a lot of evangelical missionaries go into the, the former Soviet Union. Um, I've met a lot of Lutheran bishops that are like 28 because all of the older generation got killed, right? I mean, it's uh, so, but at the same time, there is a rise of a very harsh, violent nationalism amongst the, some of the Eastern Orthodox. Uh, some like if you, if Joe Pop, you know, the old days, like there, there's, a, there's a kind of an idea of like, we're gonna regain machismo they wouldn't use that word, of course. I don't know Russian. Um, there's a kind of nationalism, a kind of a, of a, of a harsh kind of a masculine uh, uh, authoritarianism that is tied to some with adherence to the, the, the Eastern Church. Because that had been in the past, right? Because they had been side, side to side. Same thing with uh, Constantine, Charlemagne. Um, it's, it's more of the historical connection between the you know, basically the church saying, I know this guy seems mean, but God put him there, so you've got to put up with it. And then you would ask me about Romans 13, you'll have to do that some other time. Question in the back. Yeah, so what's the ideal world? So the first thing is the ideal world is something that anarchists don't like, right? Because they always, that's always what the communists do. The Marxist Leninists, we're all hanging out, we're having a beer, we're like, all right, right? We don't want to, screw this stuff. We don't want the, we don't want the, the man, you know, oppressing us. So what's your ideal society? All right, no, but the ideal society is the village that, that, that was talking about. So it's not an ideal like nation, that would be the, that would be the problem. The ideal, the, I would say the ideal America would be, I have no problem with the state of Jefferson. I have no problem with uh, uh, gambling in, in Vegas, I like it. I wanna be able to travel around America and say these cats here in, uh, in New Hampshire have, uh, have taken care of all their senior citizens with healthcare. And I was just going to tour around. It's like I want to tour around and see whose experiments work. Because in the, the I, if I could say it's an ideal, the answer is um, you woo people through the love of what it is. So everybody gets to experiment. And the stuff that's natural, the stuff, this is going back to the, the Chinese Taoists, is the stuff that works will work. We're doing it all the time. So like DeFi, uh, cryptocurrencies, no one's like really manipulating it. But El Salvador says, you know what? I think we'll use that. 
because it's not going to be tied to the corrupt uh, government. I don't know if that's going to work or not, but the idea is we'll find out. And so if El Salvador is all of a sudden able to stabilize its, its uh, currency by using cryptocurrency, by using Bitcoin, then it's not going to be like what they were facing in Chile where you would, you would get paid on Friday and by Monday eggs were worth three times as much. So then everybody says, I want to do what that thing is where people are happy and free. And then you try to make it even better. This is what I think is good with the internet and with younger generations that aren't really tied to the same ways of thinking about uniformity that maybe older generations had been. It's a great question. You have a follow-up. Yeah, yeah, so the question is, is there an overarching federal government? Federation and confederation are really important to this. So a lot of times people think anarchy just means like, we're just like running around. It's like uh, there's, a, there's a kind of an anarchist operation over here in the desert. What's it called? Uh, anyone want to? Slab City, right? Or, or whatever. Yeah, maybe. That, I mean, that's, 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 that's part of it. But the idea would be um, it, it's almost closer to William Tell. Uh, let's see. It's, it's closer to the cantons of Switzerland. It's closer to that, um, where um, what we do, okay, let me give you an example. The federal, um, let's see, the post office. Not just our post office, but I can mail something anywhere in the world, and it works, and there's no centralized government that's making that happen. The United Nations doesn't make it so that my package gets to Australia. People of goodwill have a, have a mutual interest in making it work. So... So does that make sense? So that there are going to be networks that we can opt into. And we can say, you know what? I'm tired of the, I'm tired of the federal version of this that, that's established. I'm going, to go with, uh, I'm going to go with FedEx, which sounds federal, but it's a for-profit company, right? And so those things just emerge, and that's the whole point of the Wu Wei. It's kind of like, uh, anarcho kind of like anarcho-capitalism or the, um, the invisible hand idea that what, what actually works and, and benefits people, as long as we're keeping an eye on that instead of our own power, will be what we start to adopt. This is, so the question is, what if like some other municipalities doing evil things, this is what broke it down in the original thing. Because I think in many ways, America, you understand like uh, labor unions and all this, this stuff was big in America. It was big in Spain, it was big in Italy. I mean. Anarchism was like a really viable thing up until like at kind of the end of the 19th century and then somebody assassinated somebody and then the World War I happened and everything just, you know, it just got nuts. Then people all died. Like a lot of these, a lot of these actual anarchists just got just mowed down with my machine gun. So we don't know. Um, but the, but the, I forgot where you're going with it. I'm so sorry. Yeah, what if the races? So that's, that's what happened with the Civil War, right? This is what happens with, uh, like, generally, the, the libertarian. And by the way, another word for it is, like, libertarian socialist um, on the left. If you want to say I'm a libertarian socialist or I could be an anarcho-capitalist on the right to kind of mix it around. Freedom is great. Freedom is the key. I always grew up as a, as a, as a libertarian. I understood that these were, like, my comrades. <laughs> right. But, like, the, the, like the, the anarchists were kind of my comrades if they wanted freedom, and, I, and as long as they were going to respect my, my thing. The problem is, the great, the great problem for, like, uh, uh, Bonhoeffer is, or, or, or uh, an American who said, we don't want to get involved in foreign wars. What if there's a holocaust going on? And I am not prepared to answer that, but it is, it, is the biggest, it, is the, it is the weakest point, I think, on the whole thing. Like, what do we do when somebody else is operating in a society where there is enslavement? But ultimately, the answer is you go fight them. Uh, with them. So uh, 
So um, American anarchists would go out to Spain and fight alongside other anarchists. They would send money. So like I sent money to uh, a couple anarchist guys in, um, in Afghanistan last week. Or there was somebody whose daughter was dying in Egypt. Like it's mutual aid. So the idea is I support you. I support your liberation ep efforts. Um, and what would happen in, in Afghanistan proved to not work. Right? We wanted to liberate the people of Afghanistan, and, to this, and right now they're in universities where the dudes and the gals are separated. Right? So even though we want to intervene, we've got to find a way to actually empower people from the organic uh, communities that are actually affected. Because once we go in, then we become the oppressors. And, and, and as Joe Pop, I, I keep talking about him, he, he was talking about this before, but he was saying like, uh, there, there, there was one story, is, is, is he, do you remember it was, it was uh, Mad Dog Mattis, if I, tell me if I get this wrong, so uh, General Mattis, he meets this guy who tried to blow him up. Okay, so there was a guy who put an I, uh, I, IED, tried to blow up Mattis, and this guy's arrested. He goes in, and he wants to meet with him, and the guy says, this is, uh, uh, this is uh, Joe Pop telling us this. He says, he says, the guy says to the general, if I'm a good boy in prison, can I move to America? And you're like, wait a minute, didn't you just want to blow me up? Why would you, like, why would you want to come to America? And the answer is, he wasn't really that bought into hating America. He just didn't like a foreign invading power. None of us do, right? I don't care who they are. If they're marching through into Concordia and there's some foreign invading army, we might want to oppose that. So it's never really going to work for us to, to, uh, to fight oppression as another imperial power. It will only work if we're actually honoring the people that are going to fight for their own freedom. Just ask, just ask. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot of rules. Well, that's that. It, no, how how many is too many? I I don't know how many how many is too many, but I can tell you that the the greater the greater number, the more that there's sin in the world, right? So the um, like, do you do you plan on going to grad school? The question is like, why? How do you know when there's too many rules? Uh, do you do you plan, so do you do you know if you want to do you know where you would go? Okay. Uh, the only reason I ask is. One of the reasons I went to Europe is not necessarily a, a good option for you. So talk to me if, you, if you're thinking about it. I think it's better to do, I did a terminal degree there. I think you should do a master's degree in, in uh, Europe and then come do an American PhD. But the problem is there's like standardized tests and lots of regulations and it's kind of this complex thing. How can I get into this program, right? That's a sign to me that they're, they're hiding the fact that it's not as legit as it could be. Because in England, the reason I thought it was pretty badass is they're like, I don't need you to call me doctor, sit down. Like, what do we got going here? Are you going to be good or not? So can you write something that is cutting new ground in research and we're going to honor it because it's good? As opposed to, did you come to, did you do all your comps in the right time? If it's all paperwork, it's like the public school system. The reason I, like sometimes I have this longing to go teach in like disadvantaged kids in the city. So then I'll talk to somebody who's doing it that's a former student. And they go, oh no, it's, it's hell because there's all this bureaucracy and red tape to make it look like you're teaching the kids. You never get to teach the kids. So in, in many ways, anarchists are gonna say, as few as possible. Cut. And as Stacy said, if, if your values are internalized, you don't have to write it down. Yeah, that's why, that's why you wanna trust. Uh, uh, lots of rules are also like a bad, um, uh, I would say like, um, Especially, especially at the hiring process. So if you're going to go apply for a job and it seems really like difficult to even figure out, that's a sign that the rest of your life is going to be operating that way. Yeah. What's the story of our beloved professor who talks about the our libertarian professor actually who tells us about the first rule 
at Concordia University, Irvine, the dorm rules? So you guys, you got your student handbooks? How thick are they? They're all online now. How many pages is it? Probably about that thick. Yeah. First rule, according to our beloved libertarian professor, no birds. So no Concordia University, Irvine, at the student level, started as an, a libertarian anarchist uh, establishment. The students set the rules. Some students brought birds. Turns out it's not such a good idea for studying and uh, sleeping and all sorts of things, right? Now, is that true? Yeah, if that's true, I have no idea. That's just what he used to always tell us. <laughs> good old Dr. Rod Rosenblatt. Let's give a hand for Jack, Dr. Jeff Mallinson. It is Rod's fault. <laughs> Thank you so much, friends, for joining us for this episode of the Protect Your Noggin podcast. You want to join in on the conversation? We'd love to respond to your questions or comments on a future show. You can record a message by going to protectyournoggin.org and clicking on the blue voice message button. And don't worry about getting it perfect since you'll have five minutes and a chance to preview your message before sending. You can also send an email if you're not comfortable with leaving a voice message. Please also follow us on Twitter at the PYNP. And rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you found this show of any help, uh, why not share it with a friend? Until next time, peace upon peace, friends. But he said there wasn't any letter. He said I was going out of my mind. Not going out of your mind. You're slowly and systematically being driven out of your mind. Why? Why? Perhaps because you found this letter low too much.